This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing our series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we're in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 9, we'll begin our reading in verse 9. Hear the word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. We pray that your spirit would uh, open our hearts, our minds, to study your word this morning, that you would teach us those things that you would have us to know, that you would feed our souls on your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Who? Me? I'm sure that was something like the thought that passed through the mind of this first century Jew named Matthew. There was probably no one more surprised than he was when this new religious teacher, this Jesus, who was just beginning to become more widely known, this Jesus came to him and uh, walked up to him and said, follow me, a call to discipleship. A call to faith. And Matthew no doubt thought, why should Jesus be interested in me? Who am I that Jesus should want me to be his disciple? Well, perhaps you've had thoughts like those of Matthew, as he no doubt had here when Jesus came to him. What would Jesus want with me? I have nothing to offer him. I am a very ordinary person. However, I'm also a very sinful person. I do try to obey Jesus, but I don't think that I do it very well. I know the Bible some, but sometimes it seems like just barely enough to know the difference between an apostle and an epistle. Why would Jesus want anything to do with me? Surely he can do better. Well, the surprising lesson from this passage is that if you see yourself as astoundingly ordinary or astonishingly sinful, if you see yourself as having little or nothing to offer God because of your sins, because of your past, then take heart. Because as we learn from this passage, you may be just the one Jesus is looking for. You see, Jesus came to call not the righteous people, but the sinners. 
to himself and to discipleship. After all, that's what Jesus says here at the end of this passage that we've just read. And this account that Matthew himself gives of his own calling gives us three pieces of evidence that confirm that that is in fact true. That Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the sinners. And the first piece of evidence that he gives us here is the man whom Jesus called, the man himself, Matthew. Uh, in Mark, in Luke, he's referred to as Levi. And as you yourself know, it's not uncommon uh, for people in the scriptures to have more than one name. Sometimes they had both a Jewish name and a Greek name. We know of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Paul is a Greek name. Saul was a Jewish name. Some men actually had more than one name uh, for different reasons. We think of uh, Peter, known perhaps best by that name, but also in the scriptures known as Simon. Also in the scriptures known as Cephas, which is his Aramaic name. So it's not unusual that uh, Mark and Luke would refer to this man as Levi. Matthew himself refers to himself here as Matthew. Now, we read here that this man, Matthew, is sitting at the tax booth. Now, this is there in Capernaum where Jesus had returned uh, from the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was making his home and really the center of his ministry. Uh, Being in the tax booth may have meant that Matthew was out on the edge of town on one of the major thoroughfares that passed through the town or perhaps down near the docks uh, where trade would come and go in order to assess tariffs on what came through and to tax those who were passing through along their way. Now, sometimes called a tax collector, the old King James word, a publican, not a republican, but a publican. The first time, not the Republican. Uh, I was a tax collector. Now, the tax collectors had an image problem. They had bad uh, PR for several reasons. One of which was, as tax collectors, you have to ask the question, for whom were they collecting taxes? Well, they were collecting taxes for uh, Rome, for the Roman Empire. And the Jews resented the Roman occupation of their land. In fact, it might uh, be too weak to say that. The, the, the Jews as a whole hated the presence of Rome there in their land. And in fact, one of their primary goals for the Messiah was that he would deliver them from the thumb of Rome that was on them. Now, Rome, for the most part, was relatively uh, benevolent over those territories that it had conquered. It tended to allow uh, freedom of religion as long as social order was not in danger. Uh, they tended to allow people pretty much to live as they had lived before, but yet they were still subject to Rome and still paid tribute to Rome, and the Jews hated that. Well, here was this Jewish man, Matthew, and those like him who worked for the Romans, who collected taxes for the Romans. And so the Jews viewed these tax collectors as traitors. They'd sold out. They worked for the enemy. And so just as they despised their Roman masters, they despised their fellow Jewish turncoats who were employed in the service of Rome. Now, that's just one reason people didn't like tax collectors. 
Another reason was that the tax collectors very often were corrupt. They were crooked. They would take more, more money in taxes than was required by Rome. They would send Rome its due, and they would pocket the difference. And so many tax collectors became, if not outrageously wealthy, then at least pretty well off. And some did become wealthy through the extra money that they had basically stolen from their countrymen in the service of Rome. And so for this reason, the Jews despised the tax collectors as they did the Roman government and Roman occupation itself. Now, that's the kind of man that Jesus called here. And Jesus comes to him. He sees Matthew sitting in the tax booth and he says to him, follow me. Now, we've seen that before in the study of Matthew's gospel, where uh, earlier Jesus came and he calls others to follow him, to come after him in discipleship. And it seems strange that they would do so so quickly. Was this the first time Matthew saw Jesus? Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew does it. Well, we said before, probably not in the case of uh, Peter and Andrew or James and John, uh, very likely they had at least heard of Jesus before. It's quite possible they had had conversations with him before Jesus came to them and said, follow me, and they did. And it's quite possible also that Matthew, there, living there, working there in the town of Capernaum, particularly in his position as a tax collector, people coming through and going out all the time, that he would have heard about Jesus. And in fact, we have reason to think that he did already, because look at chapter 8. Verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, and the centurion is there with the servant, and he's healed. And then verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law there, and so he heals him. And so verse 18, when Jesus saw a great crowd around him. So Jesus had already done these miracles in Capernaum. No doubt word had spread. People were becoming aware of Jesus. And so it's quite possible that Matthew very well knew who Jesus was, uh, perhaps by sight, certainly by reputation. And it's not unlikely that Jesus had spoken to him before now. And that maybe this call was the culmination of Jesus cultivating a friendship with this man, Levi. We don't know. That's just speculation. It seems likely, though, that that would have been the case. At any rate, Jesus does come to Matthew, and he says to him, follow me, and Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. Now, there's a principle here, as Jesus himself elaborates at the end of this passage, but I want to look at another principle, same principle, a different uh, statement of it. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why would he call someone that society looked down on? Why would, why would Jesus call someone who was an outcast, someone who would not carry a great deal of influence among the Jews because of the contempt for which the Jews would have held him? Look at chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Look at what Paul says about those in Corinth who came to know Jesus. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not 
to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul reminds them, when they were tempted to think highly of themselves, that he had called them, people who were of low standing, people with little status in the world, to be his disciples, to be his people. Why? Well, as he says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God calls people like Matthew because he doesn't want people who look at themselves in the mirror and say, well, of course. It's only natural that Jesus should have called someone like me, someone with such influence and wealth and means to be of use to him in the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't call people uh, of worldly influence and position, status and wealth. Uh, I remember uh, a comment made by Lady Huntington, who was a, a devout believer, follower of Christ, was a patroness of men like George Whitfield the 18th century evangelist John Wesley, and others. And she frequently heard them preach. She supported them financially in their itinerant ministries. And Lady Huntington was a woman of noble birth. She was a woman of great wealth. She was a woman of considerable social standing. And her comment on this passage in 1 Corinthians was, Saved by an M. Paul said, Not many, not not any. She was, in fact, the exception to the passage here. So she considered herself saved by an M. Paul said many. Uh, He didn't say not any. Well, it is true, though, that God delights in taking those who have no standing, no power, no influence in the world, and demonstrating his power in them. There is a humility there and an evidence of God's work. You see, Jesus came for sinners. And Matthew fit the bill. But you also see that principle that Jesus came for sinners here, not only the man whom he called, but also the company that Jesus kept. Look at verses 10 and 11. As Jesus reclined at table in the house. Now, children do not try this at home. But in that day, the table was very low and people typically stretched out on their side and leaned on an elbow and ate off the table. So they reclined at the table. We sit in chairs. That's the way we do it. But they would lie down next to the table and lean on one arm and use the other to eat. And that's where they were. Jesus reclined at table in the house. What house? Well, Mark refers to his house, meaning Matthew. Luke just says right out uh, that Levi, Matthew, held a banquet in Jesus' honor. And so Jesus is there at Matthew's house. And... Behold, Matthew says, he wants to draw our attention to this. Look at this. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and with his disciples. Now, there's this banquet here that Matthew hosts. Now, it takes some money to do something like that. Matthew probably had a good amount of money. Uh, much of it may be gained by a less than honest means. But at any rate, he had the means to hold this banquet in his home, had the home in which to do it. And he did it to honor Jesus. And, given the company, he did it perhaps to get his friends acquainted with Jesus. Now, Matthew, being a tax collector, would know other tax collectors. They were his colleagues uh, they may have been his only friends, fellow tax collectors, despised by their fellow Jews. And so Jesus, uh, or Matthew rather, invites them, and he has other people whom uh, Matthew designates here as sinners. Now we think, well, yeah, everybody's a sinner, right? But when Matthew uses the term, he's using it 
in a, in a sense that was, was known, a particular sense, especially used among the Pharisees, to designate a couple of classes of people. One uh, group whom the Pharisees labeled sinners were people who were notorious for their sin. They had public, scandalous sin that people knew about, prostitutes, that sort of thing. People were just aware of the kind of lives that they lived. But there was another group that were, late, that were included under that label sinners, and that was pretty much everyone else who did not adhere to that high standard to which the Pharisees subjected themselves. Not that they necessarily violated God's law, but they didn't keep all of the extra laws and regulations that the Pharisees had developed, and the Pharisees did that, in fact, the word Pharisee means separate, separated ones. Uh, and they separated themselves by meeting this higher standard. However, they tended to look down their nose at those who didn't meet that same standard and label them sinners. So those are the kinds of people that are here with Jesus, the guests who were present there. And, of course, Jesus' disciples were also there, which could be a reference to Peter and Andrew and James and John and those, or it could mean just others of that larger group that followed Jesus. And they, too, were present at the banquet that, uh, that Matthew gave here. Now, the scandal in this is seen in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, not to Jesus, notice, but to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, it's quite possible this didn't happen during the banquet. The Pharisees probably would not have graced this crowd with their presence, but maybe a reaction afterward. But they don't even come to Jesus. They just go to his disciples, and they ask this question, which is not a question. It's an accusation. Have you ever done that, or have you ever had someone ask you a question? And they're not asking for information. They're accusing you. You know? Well, that's the kind of question this was. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? You can just see them wrinkle up their nose. Tax collectors and sinners. Well, apparently, uh, they went and told Jesus about this, or maybe Jesus was nearby uh, in verse 12 because he explains the reason. But before we look at that, we just need to notice that these religious leaders were offended that Jesus would be in the company of those kinds of people. You see, they thought if Jesus is going to be a religious teacher, he should know what kind of people these are, and he should know that religious teachers did not associate with that kind of riffraff. You just didn't get involved with those kinds of people. But you notice how Jesus was unafraid and unashamed to associate with these outcasts, with those who were regarded as the low life, the rejects of society, in this crowd, they're rejected by not just society, but by the religious elite who wanted nothing to do with them. And not only did he associate with them, we know from other passages that he showed to them a love and a compassion that they had never known before. Remember back when he healed the leper, how he reached out and touched the man. No wonder people were drawn to Jesus. No wonder, as the gospel tells, the common people heard him gladly because they had never encountered someone like this before a man who was so obviously holy and pure who at the same time so obviously cared about them and loved them and wanted to know them and wanted to be involved with them 
Now, to be sure, he didn't in any way condone their sin. He certainly did not in any way participate with them in their wickedness. But they never encountered someone who obviously knew God, walked with God, little did they know was God, who cared about them. That was something new. That was something different. So combined with the holiness of his life, the power of his teaching, and the compassion that he showed for them, people were coming to him. People were drawn to him. The woman at the well, the prostitute who anointed his feet, the man who was born blind, the woman caught in adultery, the lepers, the people who were just tired of trying to keep up with the legalism of the Pharisees and were weighed and burdened by it. And rather than heaping up more condemnation on them, looking down his nose at them in scorn, he said to them, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, both by the burden of sin and by the burden of legalistic righteousness, he says, and I will give you rest. He didn't condone their sin, but he loved them as people made in the image of God and yet ravished and broken by sin. You see, are we like Jesus in that respect? Or are we like the Pharisees, proud and separate in our own delusion of righteousness? Are we like Jesus, willing to associate with and show compassion to those caught even in the most repugnant sins? You think their sins are offensive to you? Think what they must have looked like to Jesus, who himself had never sinned in any way. You see, if we can grasp that we too are only sinners saved by grace, then we understand we have no place to reject or write off or throw away other sinners in need of God's saving and cleansing and forgiving grace. You see, Jesus came for sinners. So we've seen the man whom Jesus called. We've seen the company that Jesus kept here and was... uh, criticized for it by the religious elite. But then the third evidence that we see here is the principle that Jesus held. And he explains his principle here in verses 12 and 13. Uh, It really is kind of a philosophy of ministry. When Jesus heard about this question, which was really an accusation, Jesus said in verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, Jesus is putting our sin in physical terms of being well or being sick. People who are healthy and well don't need a doctor. They're okay. People who are sick do need a doctor. They do need care. And that's where the physician needs to be with those who are sick. Now, you know, perhaps, that there's irony here. Because when Jesus says those who are well, and just a moment, those who are righteous, you and I know there's no one who is spiritually well. There is no one who is truly righteous before God. Jesus seems to be taking that up for the sake of argument. The Pharisees' view of themselves as well. Their view of themselves as righteous. And he takes up their their own perception of themselves for the sake of argument. Fine. You see yourself as Okay, well, I didn't come for you. I came for these kinds of people who evidently are sick and see themselves as sick and would acknowledge that they are spiritually sick, that they are eaten up with sin, the cancer of sin. 
before God. It's, the, it's those who are sick who need a physician. And then he gives an admonition here that's directed toward the Pharisees, verse 13. And he quotes from the Old Testament. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now that's taken from the passage, the end of the passage in Hosea that we read earlier. And what the Lord is saying there is that he wants the evidence lived out of a heart for God, not just going through the religious motions. He wants the heart and not the shell. And as that was a problem for God's people in the Old Testament. Remember Isaiah, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus quotes that in his own ministry of the Pharisees. But it's a problem in the Old Testament, a problem in the New Testament, but it's also a problem today. You see, what Jesus is saying here is, I don't want your outward forms, your, your going through the motions of worship. I want your heart. And a heart that I have is a heart that shows grace, it shows mercy, it shows compassion toward other people in their sins. Not self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has no place in the life of the believer. But when we look at another person, we think, yuck, don't want to have anything to do with him. Look at the life he leads. Look at the kinds of things she does. We're being self-righteous. We're acting as if we somehow had some righteousness of our own that places us over that kind of person. No, maybe we have not been involved in that particular sin that that person is involved in. Maybe we're not ensnared in that kind of sin. We have our own sin. You know, Jesus was much, much harder on the sin of pride and self-righteousness than he was the sin of adultery. It was a sin. It was a a scandalous and grievous sin. But typically the people in that knew they were sinners. But it was the proud and the self-righteous who saw themselves as well and having no need of a physician. In fact, the greatest boundary, the greatest barrier to a person coming to Christ is not a great sense of sin. It's a false sense of righteousness. Because the righteous person who sees himself as righteous doesn't particularly feel any need for a savior. That's why Jesus says here, go and learn what this means. By the way, that expression, go and learn, is what a rabbi would say to his erring disciple who hasn't quite got it. And the rabbi would say to his student, go and learn what this means. Go study this out. Go and and read and think about this and come back to me when you've when you've had some insight here. It's kind of a rebuke. I mean, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, and honestly, people who were looked up to, you need to go back to the book and study it again and see what this means because you've got it wrong. So a little bit of a, a jab at them. And then he concludes with sort of a recap of what he said in verse 12, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, they saw themselves as righteous. They weren't. They needed Jesus desperately. And Jesus reached out to them. And he would deal with them on their own terms. He would, he would joust with them. He would spar with them verbally and in terms of knowledge. But Jesus did reach out to them. And there were those among the, the leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, who did come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We think of Nicodemus and others. Think of Paul. But Jesus is pointing out here that the person who's going to come to him, the person whom Jesus calls, is a person who first has a sense of his own need of Jesus. But now, while that's a rebuke to the self-righteous, that's also an encouragement to those who see themselves as sinners. 
who think, what could God have to do with me? I, I've blown it. I've, I'm such a sinner. I'm caught up in these things. Jesus came for sinners, and we are sinners. We may be wealthy. We may be educated. Maybe intelligent, maybe talented, maybe influential, maybe important, but whatever else we are, we are sinners. God bears witness, Scripture bears witness, your own conscience bears witness that you sin against God, you sin against Him daily. And we say that all the more when we understand sin as Jesus teaches it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the biggie sins that we commit outwardly. It's even the attitudes of our heart. It's our failure every single day to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We break that one every day, the greatest commandment of all. But the good news is that Jesus came for sinners. And so you never think that you have to get yourself cleaned up before you can come to Jesus. You never have to get your life straightened out and make yourself somehow worthy to come to Jesus. Because even if you do manage to do it, it will only be an inadequate, false, harmful righteousness at best. You see, it's your sin. It's your sin, not your pretension to righteousness that qualifies you for Jesus' attention. Because Jesus came for sinners. Jesus asks only that we recognize our spiritual poverty. That we, that we declare spiritual bankruptcy and trust in him. Because you see, for those who receive him by faith, no sin is too great, no sins are too numerous, no sin has been cherished and loved and held for so long that his blood can't break its power, remove its guilt, and wash away its stain. You see, Jesus didn't come for the righteous, so stop pretending. He came for sinners like you like me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be real before you. We don't have to pretend that we are something other than what we are. And what we are, Lord, is sinners. But we thank you that Jesus came for sinners. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You came for us. We pray that by your grace, we would follow you. By your grace, we would trust in you. Be clean and be righteous in you. Thank you for your cleansing blood. Thank you for your perfect righteousness. We pray in your name. Amen.